From Evanston, Illinois, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond Development Analysis of National Politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor in your window, all opened up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Jeff Giza, Eric Cohn, Chris Veronis, Michael Golden, Mike Miller, and Judith Sherwin. Our program tonight, company of my own base, at the WCGO studios in Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us wherever you're listening. 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number. 1-800-723-8289. And we begin this evening by uh, asking a question. I'm going to I'm going to start uh, uh, this evening. I'm going to go to Eric Cohn, who's our libertarian, who, who joins us. And uh, Eric, my question to you is, there's been so much negative news that's out there. As you look, is is there anything positive? Is there any silver lining at the end of this uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic? Well, I'll speak personally first. I think for me, it has been rather enjoyable to, I've sat down to dinner with my family almost every single night since this has started. Mm-hmm. That's not something that we normally do, or at least not do as often. I've used it as a personal opportunity to watch some old movies that I've either never seen or haven't seen in years. I watched yeah. Patton the other night and it was fantastic. Um, I, I think the other thing, though, on a kind of more of a national level, at least, if not a global level, is a bit of an appreciation for just how incredible the world is now. Pandemics at almost any other point in human history, you look at the Black Plague, the Bonic Plague, all of these could have wiped out millions, if not you know tens of millions of people. And this has the potential to be that deadly, but we are in such an advanced and wealthy society that we've been able to weather it a lot better than previous societies would. And I think we should have a little gratitude and appreciation for what created this world. Uh, Chris Veronis, we go to you. You're a, uh, you're a conservative. Uh, you were not a Trump supporter in the past. Uh, but go ahead. What's your answer to the question? Any, any Anything positive comes out of this? I, I do, absolutely. Um, I think it's too early to tell. Um, quite frankly, part of me thinks it's a little inappropriate to talk about the innovation or new ways of thinking that could come out of the pandemic. Um, I think it's best that all physical and mental energy be devoted to the crisis in front of us. But I've got a friend who's a medical resident at the University of Chicago Medical Center, and she's telling me all kinds of um, innovative products that are coming through, ones that would um, be better than N95 mask, ones that are 3D printed. So what, what's happening when you have a crisis like this set on a societal level, it's going to force us, it's going to force us um, to do things differently, to think things differently that we haven't before and couldn't. Jeff Giza also joins us. Uh, Jeff is a media entrepreneur. Uh, he was an early uh, supporter of, of, of Donald Trump. He's been uh, somewhat uh, critical in, in recent weeks and months. And uh, Jeff, you join us from, uh, uh, from your, your cabin in, in the great state of Maryland. Uh, but what's your answer? You're 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 generally a positive guy. You're an innovator. Is is there anything positive that comes out of this mess we're in right now? We are not uh, hearing uh, Jeff for some reason. Um, I, I think number one, Bruce, is a reevaluation of things that are important to us in our lives. You know, it's a, it's an opportunity to take stock and focus on what really matters. So that's one positive thing. Second positive thing, I think it's accelerating a lot of trends that were already out there. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, education, telework, all these industry things. In, in many respects, you could say it's really 
it's really accelerating the 21st century trends that were, you know, that were that were kind of already in motion. And thirdly, I think we're seeing the writing on the wall that these 20th century legacy institutions aren't really working and we need to reset and, and refresh the way we're operating. So I think that that that's become much more obvious now. So those are some good things. Now, the 20th century institutions elaborate. Do you mean more than the media, more than academia? Uh, what other institutions are you referring to? All of it. I mean, the World Health Organization, the CDC. So from from government institutions, first and foremost, um, as well as academic institutions, you could say, um, I think we've seen both the good and the bad. And we've seen some institutional failures. Um, you know, a month ago, the Surgeon General of the U.S. was telling us not to wear masks, that they don't work when that's clearly not not true. Um, there are some institutional failures that I think have happened here that um you know there's been good stuff as well but i think that that forces the issue of of reinventing them for the future mm. eric let me go back to you because uh, you are uh, you've also been very critical of the president uh so my question to you is is there anything that he has done now uh that that you view in a positive way or is the story in the new york times today about how he ignored numerous attempts to uh, get this issue on, you know in his brain uh is is this the potential dagger that could be in his heart because he's avoided anything that anyone has thrown at him since he walked down the escalator in trump tower could this could this sink him i don't think it's going to sink him i think the reality of the world we're living in is this was going to be a turnout election from the beginning there is a group of people who are going to believe every single word and going to take to heart every single word that was in that times piece and there's another group of people who are going to say that it's absolute nonsense every single word that's in that times piece uh there's almost nothing that can dissuade the true died in the wool trump supporter and there is nothing that can uh, dissuade the dissent from that that other people have. I, I do think that some of the basic management stuff, he's had moments of doing it well. He's had moments when he's been on script at these press conferences that he seems to be doing well. And then he goes, as always, it comes with the tweeting. He goes on Twitter and talks about how the ratings for his press conferences are right. incredible and how many people are watching them. And it's like, you know, dude, if you're going to do that, at least give the virus a little credit, because I think that's a lot of the reason why people are watching it. And it's just so incredibly gross to see him behaving that way. But I've said for a long time, people bought the Trump ticket and we're going to take the ride. I think this is the greatest stress test we've seen as to how people are going to tolerate it. Jeff, let me go back to you, because, uh, uh, as I mentioned, you were an early adopter to, to, to Trump. You were for Trump long before it was I don't know whether it's ever been fashionable, but but certainly you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> And, and you led to the surprise uh, election of 2016, yet uh, you too have had some, uh, some you've been questioning publicly, including uh, in, in Vanity Fair magazine, uh, that, that the president may have missed the boat here. Yeah, I mean, I thought in February he did a terrible job in February. I was very critical. In March, I think he's done, did good. And in April, I think he's doing quite well. So... February, I think he was a disaster. He was a little bit late to take it seriously. His messaging wasn't uh, consistent. Um, but something switched right in, in that second week of March. I think something switched in him when he, when he finally got it. And since that, that moment, uh, every week he's gotten better and better and better. And I poll people on Twitter and the average grade that I think I would give him and that I've seen other people give him is about a B. Um, 
he's done some things really well and some things not perfectly. It's not clear to me that a Hillary Clinton administration would have done handled this much better, or uh, or it's certainly not clear that a Joe Biden administration um, would handle this any better. So has it been perfect? No, um, but I do think he's done a few things right, and it's getting better and better. No, I think you're like, I, I think your last point about about Joe Biden, I think that's that's what comes through loud and clear to me is that uh, if if there was a real strong, competent, you know, a confidence building opponent out there, I think the president might be in deep trouble uh, in the election. But uh, again, you 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 throw uh, Joe Biden into that press conference every day every day, and uh, I think would be horrified. Back shortly. Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. We've got a caller on the line. Let's go to Rosanna listening to us in Springfield, Illinois. Go ahead, Rosanna. Uh, happy Easter to everyone. Happy um, Easter to you. I've had a personal Easter. experience, and I just want to share it with you. And this is where my fear of the coronavirus coming back in uh, the fall is some are mentioning, like Dr. Fossey, Mm -hmm. um, and why that would be. I had a Chinese student from China living with me for three years. He was from Shanghai, going to high school. And so during that time, I uh, became educated on really the whole thing. It's big, big, big business in China. There's well over 40,000 students here in the United States from, in high school and college, they go back uh, during Christmas break, some of them, and then now they're going to go back for summer break. And if the travel restrictions are lifted, we are opening ourselves up, I believe, to, yes, the coronavirus uh, revisiting the United States. Okay, let's go. Let's, nobody's talking no. about this. Well, you brought it up, so we're going to talk about it for a moment here, Chris Veronis. Let's. Uh, why don't you jump in on this? Because uh, you know the the way in which our our society is changing because of this and reaction to it is this is just one small story that uh, we should be talking about. It's hard to see the borders opening anytime soon. Um, um, anytime before a vaccine is found. And so you could have political objections to, um, you know, border control, immigration flows, whatever, but the public health imperative trumps everything else. And so I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to see a Fortress America, uh, whether people like it or not. Uh, Jeff Giza, your response to this question. Yeah. So I was talking to my sister, who's a flight attendant today. And I said, she said, Jeff, what's your expectation? And I said, Jeff, I said, I told her, I said, I expect this to be a 12 to 18 month ordeal overall. We're in the first inning of it. And that first inning might peak within the next few weeks. But then after that, it's not like the lights are just going to switch on and everything's going to go back to normal. It's going to be more of a staged approach. And then in the fall, depending on how much progress there is, there's risk of it coming back in the fall and next winter. And so um, that's definitely a real possibility. And, and to clarify, I mean, it's not just from China, it's from everywhere at this point. Um, but so her, her, her main concern about the backside of the curve is very valid. So the, the, other, the other thing to point out really quick is um, when we hit summer, the Southern Hemisphere 
will be in winter. So there's going to be a, a, a concern, a danger almost from south of the border, like we've never seen before, potentially. Is this a situation, though, that, that a Chinese student who is here studying is going to have to make a decision? They're either going to stay in the United States, if the United States will allow them, or China will allow them, and, and perhaps never go home until this thing is resolved. Yeah. That, that, two, two points. One, you mentioned the travel restrictions. Uh, talking about closing down, we, we didn't even really close down. 43,000 people after right. Trump's travel restrictions from China still came from China to the United States. Uh, so I, I think that is worth pointing out. Secondly, I think this highlights the necessity for ramping up testing as quickly and as fast as possible. Um, getting, If that means getting the FDA and the CDC and some of the other roadblocks to te- increase testing out of the way, I think that's what needs to be done. But if we are able to effectively test people, you have, can lessen the concern about those particular students. But there's always the possibility this could come back in a second and third wave, even without um, students from China being the impetus for that. Now, uh, Rosanna, thank you very much for your, your call. Very a good 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 call thanks very much 1-800-723-8029 if you have a question uh the the other thing i, I want to kind of you know bring up now is uh the way in which the media has been covering this um jeff i'm going to start with you you're you're a media guy you're a media entrepreneur uh you know how the mainstream media works you know how you know how the alternative uh, media work uh what grade would you give them on the way they're covering this uh, crisis so I would give the media a C minus. Um, I did a poll of over 17,000 Twitter users. And, and granted, this is a somewhat biased sample selection. 85% of them would give the media an F. They're, especially on the right and the kind of Trump supporting right, there's a lot of mistrust and anger and frustration at the media and their whole attitude towards this. They were mocking it, not taking it seriously, and so forth. At the same time, I think there's been a lot of really good journalism and media also, like Trump, I think has improved. Um, but overall, I give I give media a C, C minus. The eighty three percent of uh, of Trump supporters would give the media an F on their coverage of puppy adoptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I, I think, I think it's, it's a pretty pointing. Pa- I think it's a patronizing attitude. Um, I think there is a lot of mistrust and anger towards the media overall. Yes, and, and some of it is justified. very warranted, but some of it is also gross and over the top and ridiculous. And they act when legitimate questions are asked in these press conferences as if they're illegitimate because Trump is up there saying, oh, that's an unfair question, even I'm, though in a lot of cases, they're completely fair questions. And he also baits them into this constant back and forth and this do do that they do about one's lying, the other's lying, one's acting like a jerk, the other's acting like a jerk. He helps create his own problems. I, I'm just giving an empirical fact that, number one, media trust of all Americans is at an all-time low the last few years. Yes. And then number two, 17,000 Trump supporters, 85% of them would give the country an F. Like, whether you like it or not or agree with it or not, I understand you don't. There is a lot of anger and mistrust out there. I don't agree with it. I would give them a C. Yeah, the one um, thing I would add, the one thing I would add, anger and mistrust. Go ahead, Chris, to you, and you give your grade, and then I'll sum it up. <laughs> Eric and Jeff, uh, pox on both your houses. I mean, basically... You're both right. Um, I agree, Jeff. It's, it's about a C minus. Yeah. Um, the mainstream media, particularly broadcast media, has a serious Trump derangement syndrome problem. It's embedded in the fiber of their news coverage. I mean, CNN arguably is the worst. Um, Eric, you're right. Uh, Trump just, like the dog and the rabbit, just can't can't resist. 
can't resist instinct to talk about ratings, talk about ratings amid a global pandemic. It's gross. But, you know, the point that you made earlier about turnout, I don't know if that's true, because then the 2018 election sort of scrambled the notion of negative uh, partisanship. And there's this exhausted emerge, uh, majority that emerged that I think could take on new life with this global pandemic. Well, the one thing about the about the news conferences, if uh, and I agree with what what was said before, is that if if you if you love Trump and you watch those press conferences, your your opinion is not going to you you still love Trump. If you hate Trump, you probably are not even watching the press conferences. But if you are an independent, and the independents and where they come down, I mean, that that could be crucial in November. If if they watch the press conferences, uh, I think a lot of them would say, you know, the president, you know, did he, you know, he, he did not do well today. But I think they will also say and see with their own eyes and ears, they will they will see that the the, the predicate of every question asked is a negative. It starts it starts with a negative foundation. And and I think that that you know time after time I think they could understand why the president would kind of blow up at some of these questions. Some of them are stupid, but I also th- agree with you, Eric. I think a lot of them are, are valid. But it yeah. seems to me that if you're watching the press corps uh, operate every day, and by, by the one one thing I wish they would do because a lot of these people that are asking questions, you don't know who they are. I yeah. would like to see them all identified. He sometimes asks who they are. But I'd like this, to see, I mean, Peter Alexander problem. from NBC, some of the network people I know, but some of these other people, I don't. The problem with that, Bruce, is that Jonathan Carl at ABC or Maggie Haberman in the New York Times, they're not running for president. Right. And this, this can and will only get worse. I mean, forget about the spring. I mean, once we go back into uh, cold weather in the fall, in the election, that, that's when it could really, really get bad. And um, and Trump just can't get past um, looking at this crisis about how it impacts or inconveniences him. Yeah. And if we get into six-digit deaths and he's still playing the same tune, there will be a severe backlash on Election Day. Would you like to see, Jeff, uh, I think I know the answer to this, less of the president and maybe more of Mike Pence? Uh, no, I wouldn't be presumptuous. I mean, I would. I think I would like to see more of the president. Uh, that said, I, I like what Chris said and agree with it that Trump's behavior isn't perfect. It's sort of buffoonish and unserious in some respects with respect to the media. So I, I do think he he shoulders some blame here. But I think the media has been even worse. I mean, every like you mm-hmm. pointed out, every question has come from this angle of uh, gotcha or yeah. partisan agenda instead of putting the health of, of Americans both physically and economically first and foremost and I think that unhealthy dynamic between the media and the president uh, is a real dysfunction right now regardless of which side you're on um, but no I don't think it's really going to impact the election in November that much I mean what, this was the case for many years what what about the, the the growing distance at least that the media tries to portray between the president and his 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 medical team, his chief medical team. I mean, they're always looking for a way to find some distance between he and, and Fauci. And frankly, Fauci is saying things, you know, on, on, on media appearances that sometimes uh, fly in the face of what the administration is trying to say. Chris, well, take, Trump says that things that fly in the face of what Trump's saying. Right. <laughs> but But again, the question is, 
Are we going to get to the point where the president's going to wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm tired of hearing so, about Anthony Fauci. Yeah, that'll never happen. So in, in, in it's not question. Does, anybody, it, does it, anybody, does anyone on this line right at the moment, I need a quick answer. Does anybody think that uh, Fauci's job is somehow in trouble if he continues to uh, offer a different opinion than the president? A thousand times no. <laughs> okay. We're going to be back 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. I'm Bruce Dumont. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on our radio stations all over the country as well as uh, on uh, Facebook Live, Beyond the Beltway uh, with Bruce Dumont Facebook Live. We should mention, by the way, during this uh, new configuration that we're operating under, um, the uh, the YouTube version of this program will be seen a little bit later on. We cannot do that live for uh, technical reasons, but again, uh, uh, in a in a few hours, you'll be able to go to our YouTube channel and uh, and see the video portion of this program. In addition, obviously, if you miss the radio, it's on Spotify. It's on virtually uh, all kinds of ways you can find this program. Again, it's beyond the Beltway. Again, you can either listen to us live on Sunday night or anytime uh, throughout the rest of the week. Uh, we have three great guests this evening. I want to take a moment and let them introduce themselves. And uh, we're going to start with Jeff Giza. And Jeff, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what, what you do when you're not uh, pontificating on Beyond the Beltway. <laughs> so hi, everyone. Happy Easter to those who celebrate. I'm a media entrepreneur, um, also do some writing in the national security world, and I supported Trump in 2016. But I'm also pretty critical of him at times as well. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you a quick question. At this moment in time, what odds would you would you give for his reelection? 50-50 or better? Uh, slightly better than 50. I would say 53 to 55. Okay. And uh, Eric Cohn, tell us a little bit about yourself. Along with Joe Kaiser, I host Sources with Knowledge on News Talk 560, The Answer in Chicago. It airs from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Sundays. You can also find it at your local podcast feed. And for my day job, I'm the Director of Communications at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, and Chris Veronis. I'm Chris Veronis. I'm a communication consultant. I, uh, my firm is ESOP Communications Group. I'm an occasional blogger and a lifelong fan of Beyond the Beltway. And uh, is it safe to, as to say that uh, you still can't get on the, uh, the Trump train uh no not on the trump train i took a pass on the 2016 uh presidential uh choice um and i'm still undecided believe it or not is there the the question that the president is facing right now and he said it's going to be the toughest decision he ever he's ever made and that is when to reopen the country he definitely wants to reopen the country uh how important is that to him uh politically and how important is that to the country jeff I think it's a tough needle to thread. I think it's critical to the country and to his reelection. And I think it needs to be framed not as a binary thing. It's not like now we're shut down and now we're open, but rather as a staged reopening. And that's going to be the right approach where we say, hey, let's let's keep elderly and vulnerable people uh, quarantined and let's wear masks in public and let's do more of a staged reopening of America and see how it goes and take that approach. And I think that's going to win in the end yeah that's what the dr fauci said to use that same term to staged uh, reopening uh eric Cohn, to you 
the biggest problem with framing it as, you know, when will Trump decide to reopen the economy is that it's not his decision. Um, first is the decision primarily of state governors if they are going to lift the various executive orders that have shelter in place requirements for their citizens. But also, you know, even before here in, in Chicago, I'm in Chicago right now, mm-hmm. even before you had the shelter in place orders, I talked to, you know, restaurants I go pick up food from, they were already seeing a steep decline in their business because people are afraid of this thing and they were staying in. So people aren't going to go out and patronize restaurants. They're not going to crowd into sporting arenas. They're not going to go to places with lots of people if they don't have confidence that we have this thing under control. So even if he could snap his fingers and say, we've reopened the economy, everybody go out and do business. I don't know that people are going to rush to do that. So it's a bit out of his control, no matter how much he may want it to be within his control. Chris Veronis. If Trump could talk about the economy and the stock market um, all day, he would. Um, I, I think he obsesses about reopening the economy, if you want to call it that. Um, he doesn't know and understand the virus, um, the restrictions. I, I, I just think it just doesn't interest him uh, topically. Um, and... Um, you know, part part of me, just like how he said two weeks ago, he wanted to have everyone out back at Easter. That is Trump right there. That's the beating heart of Trump because um, of, of what impact this is going to have on the election. Well, he's, he says, though, that he is the cheerleader. He is supposed to be confident. He wants to exude confidence. I mean, <clears throat> don't the American people have to hear that this thing, that, that we're going to get through this somehow. And he's the guy that's out there. I mean, basically, he's, uh, you know, people who criticize him for denying science, I mean, he's listening to the scientists. He's listening to the scientists yeah. right now. You can have you can have confidence with a sense of sobriety and seriousness about it as well, which is to say, you know, we're, we're doing all that we can on this. You can talk about all, you know, increased testing. You can talk about all of the things that are being done to help the situation without making promises that you don't know that you can keep. Like, hey, it'd be great if we could get everyone out in two weeks. It's like this New York real estate deal, like two weeks, two weeks. Yeah. We'll fix everything in two weeks. Right. And he can't deliver on these promises and it's not helpful to continue to say things like that and freelance in the way that he does optimism and under promising and over delivering are alien let's go jeff go ahead but yeah but but it's not realistic to stay quarantined for 18 months like the current status quo cannot just go on indefinitely he did not promise to open things up by by easter it was clearly an aspirational thing and I think he does understand the health considerations now, as well as the as, as well as the economic considerations, which which do have a human cost as well, a huge human cost. And I don't think it's realistic for us to just stay quarantined for the next eighteen months. We do need cheerleading. We do need a healthy tension between our health precautions and epidemiological considerations and our economic functioning and the functioning of the rest of our society. And, and um, I, that's hope, a I hope I also lot. hope. I also hope that he understands and has learned a lesson that you can't have an off the off the cuff comment like when he was at a at a, at a testing facility. This is almost probably four weeks ago now. When he said anybody that wants a test can have a test tomorrow. I mean, clearly that is wrong. We're we're still waiting for the ability to have tests. And and let me let me just let's just uh, look inside the logistics of testing. We found out we went through the whole first month dealing with the logistics of, of masks and gowns and 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 ventilators. Uh, how do we put this 
testing situation in, in, in place in a logistical way, Jeff? How do we start it? Well, well, to your point, I think mass serologic testing is essential. That means getting these rapid tests out to as many people as possible. And in order to do so, it starts with number one, prioritizing who they go to. So obviously, health workers would be a priority group, for example. Uh, and then number two, I think there's an FDA regulation component of this. They need to look at loosening some of those regulations to speed things to get to market. Number three, there's the manufacturing um, and doing deals with Abbott and some companies like that. And there are some startups, I believe there is one in Arizona that just released their, their um, tests and get it to market. So I think it's a combined response, um, but we definitely want to get those tests out into the marketplace as quickly as possible. When you say into the marketplace, I want to move on to, to uh, Eric and let him sort of pick up on that. First of all, uh, by getting it out into the marketplace, I mean, uh, are, are we looking at the possibility that you might uh, go to your local Walgreens or CVS to get your test done and, and you would be making appointments at your pharmacist? I mean, look at look at all the facilities they have all over the United States. I mean, they're they're massively covered. This far more Walgreens than there are hospitals. I think that would be the ideal situation if that's the way the testing is is going to work. Uh, and and as was said, you, you have the FDA being a constant roadblock to these things. I think one of the if you want to go back to silver linings, one of the silver linings that may come out of this is a rethinking of the way that the FDA stands in the way of a lot of important things coming to market in a timely manner. There's always with with regard to the FDA, the incentive that they stand in the way uh, to the almost the greatest extent possible because something may go wrong because you never know the name of the bureaucrat that stood in the way of something very helpful. But you know the name of the bureaucrat that greenlight, you know, greenlit something like thalidomide. They're the ones that end up in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be in that position. If we rethink the FDA as a result of this, that will be a good outcome. Chris Veronis, what about the, the distribution? Getting back to my point about uh, are we looking at almost, uh, you know, neighborhood uh, t testing facilities like at the local Walgreens or CVS? Really quick to Eric's point. I, I mean, what's happened um really since February is there's been a lot of restrictions that have been lifted on FDA oversight and approval, which sort of raises the question, why reinstitute them if and when the, the pandemic goes away? If they're if they're good, if if they're good not to have now, why not have them not in the future? So that could be one of the new normal realities that comes out of the pandemic. But <clears throat> Walgreens, for example, I think they made an announcement this week that um, maybe like nine, probably more stores are have done the curbside uh, testing, and uh, it was, I think it's Abbott Labs that that has perfected the new five minute right. test. We get the results on the spot. So yeah, th these new therapies, these new products are coming online. They're going to make things easier, but still, still, um, we're way behind where we should be on testing right now. Well, I want to. When, when we come back, I also want to talk about something else that was alluded to uh, by our call with, with Rosanna, and that is uh, Dr. Fauci has said that this thing may come back in the fall, may come back next year. So yeah. uh, I, I assume we're going to be a lot better prepared then. But again, what does it do to opening up the country and the things that we're dealing with and the, and the self-isolation? I mean, the, the way in which we live our lives. I mean, do we... Do we go through a second year where there is no baseball season, there is no 
you know, the NFL hasn't been canceled yet, but they're talking about ways to bring back baseball. But, I mean, is baseball in the spring something that's never going to happen again? These are some of the things I want to talk about with our guests, Jeff Giza and Eric Cohn and Chris Veronis. We thank you very much for joining us tonight. 1-800-723-8229 from coast to coast and border to border. Now in our 40th year on the air, coming up with our anniversary uh, in June. I don't know whether we can all get together to celebrate, but it's coming up back shortly. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. We've got a couple of comments. Pam Winston sends a note. President Trump gave center stage to the experts, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. When this is over, they will no longer be experts. And Ron Culp, a longtime listener to the program, said, The president put Pence in charge, so let him lead. Drop in once a week for significant developments but basically let him do it. And he also said that he believes that the questions that are being asked by the White House press corps should be answered by the president and not uh, deflected. Let's go to uh, David listening to us in Spokane, Washington, on KXLY. You're on the air. Hey, good evening, gentlemen. Hi there. Uh, I had some COVID comments. Hey, sorry, I had some COVID comments <laughs> for you, but I don't know how much I'm going to be able to get to, uh, into. I told uh, your call screener kind of a spot to look into some of it, but uh, when I heard you talking about the media, I just have to comment real quick that I totally agree that, especially CNN, the media anymore has become more of like a propaganda station than anything mm-hmm. else. And right. uh, there are some stupid questions. For example, when they ask the president in the briefing room, you know, how many deaths are acceptable to you? I mean, what, what do you think the answer is? Or if you say, can you guarantee pretty right. much anything, guarantee right. people have respirators by a certain time? You can't guarantee anything. So, yes, those, are, I think, are stupid questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole CNN thing that drives me crazy, them and MSNBC, is that when the Horowitz uh, briefing was coming through um, and Lindsey Graham was giving his whole introduction on, on you know, what this Detroit what it was about, what Horowitz was going to present, mm-hmm. both CNN and MSNBC ended up cutting him completely off and not coming back until Dianne Feinstein came on, as opposed to Fox, which carried all of it, as well as when they carried all of the impeachment hearings as well. They didn't limit one thing or the other. And when you limit what you allow your, your viewers to watch, you're, you're propaganda. You're, you're, you're limiting and, and focusing them on what you want them to see. So as far as the media goes, I totally... You know, agree mm-hmm. with your your uh, commenters on that. Right. And then, by the I'm way, let me just let me just let me just let me oh, just sorry, jump in. Let me jump in for just a second, yeah, uh, because I'm home and 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 stuck in my uh, <laughs> my condo all day. Uh, I am uh, I'm switching back. I'm watching mostly Fox, but I also will go over to NBC, uh, uh, MSNBC, and also to CNN. And I will tell you, it's very difficult to watch them. And anyone anyone yeah. who who gives a knee jerk reaction and dismisses Fox. They're not taking into consideration the way that they're conducting themselves because you can watch Fox. I got to tell you, Chris Wallace is not a lapdog for Donald Trump, and neither is Neil no. Cavuto, and neither is Tucker Carlson. I mean, come up with some names on CNN that ever uh, can say anything nice about Trump. So it's night and day. I mean, the the quality and and what Fox puts on as a as a as a product. Is is far superior to anything that NBC, uh, MSNBC and uh, CNN can 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 try. Go ahead. Yeah, ne- next question. Agree. Go ahead. Oh, well, one other thing I was just going to throw out uh, to throw on the table is it's a little bit sickening to hear all these governors complaining about not having respirators, not having PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, and everything else. 
when they're trying to blame the federal government for that, when it's the governor's responsibility, first and foremost, to be prepared for that kind of stuff. And it's not like they didn't know this kind of thing was going to happen. We had the bird flu, swine flu. We had, you know, H1N1. There's been over the last 25 years or so, we've had like five or six of these events. So for these governors to now all of a sudden complain that, gee, we never would have known to be prepared for this, and we're so upset that the government isn't satisfying all of our needs. Hey, if you're worried about who didn't satisfy your needs, look in the mirror. Yeah. That's kind of my comment for the governors. I'm yeah. just a little bit upset about how the media pushes that and trying to blame it all on the federal government. Well, you have a job as a governor, and that's what your job is. Right. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, Giza, Giza, your response to uh, the way in which the media has, has been playing the governors against the White House. Yeah, I mean, I think the media wants to tell people like the caller that you're dumb and gaslight you and yeah. that you're wrong for thinking that the media is biased and acting you know, as a partisan weapon and a propaganda thing. And and I happen to think that you're actually right and that your frustration with the media is appropriate and that even Fox isn't perfect. Uh, nope. And that every question that's asked right now should be focused on the health of American people, uh, economic or physical health. And the gotcha games and so forth just aren't that constructive right now. So that's how I that's how I view it. Um, Eric, would you would you acknowledge what I just said is that the Fox News of today is different than the Fox News of two years ago? Uh, well, I think that's true. I think it's been perpetually true over time that there's this sort of public conception that Fox News has right. been good for conservatism and bad for journalism. And I think right. the exact opposite is true. If you look at the I actual agree. journalistic operation at Fox News um, from the regular reporters that have covered the White House at Henry in the past, um, if you look at Chris Wallace, if you look at Brett Baer's show, the journalism is excellent. I think their commentary in the evening sometimes the clowns itself. Right, yeah. uh, but I think the journalism overall from Fox is is rather good. Right. I I agree, and I think if you ask a liberal who will who will give you a knee jerk a reaction when you mention Fox News, they can never give you a specific, or they'll talk about Sean Hannity, and I'm saying that's not what I'm talking about. It, it's easy to point news. to the opinion programming in the evening because right. the opinion programming gets more viewers and more attention. But no. Brett Baer's Special report could be put up against any nightly news broadcast as just as good, if not far better, in my opinion. Totally agree. Let's go to uh, Don in Austin, Texas. Go ahead. You're on the air, Don. Hey, guys. Uh, two quick points. Yeah. Uh, I have a laboratory that's now making one million tests a week. And that may sound a lot, but that's 300 weeks if you wanted to test for yeah. everybody in America. Yeah. And if you were to uh, wrap that up to three million tests, you're still looking at over a year before you have all those tests. So I think the, the whole testing thing is a red herring because we're never going to be able to have enough tests to test everybody multiple times like you're going to need for, for example, first responders. Right. No, they've got, no, they, they, again, you, you have to have confidence that if you're going to go into the hospital, uh, the people that are there are going to, are going to be treating you, that they themselves are, are, are safe. So I think that certainly has to be a priority. Uh, let me ask, let me see if I can, uh, I, I can't, I just can't do it. I want to ask everybody a, a final question and give them 10 seconds to answer it, but that's unfair. But I want to thank Jeff Giza. Jeff, thank you very much for being with us. Eric Cohn, thank, thank you. you for being with us. Chris Verona, thank, thank you, you for being with us. There are guests on hour number one. We'll be back for another full hour of guests, new guests. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway.
What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing. Good evening, it's Bruce Dumont back for hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thanks for joining us tonight. Our telephone lines are open at 1-800-723-8289, 1-800-723-8289. We're also uh, live on not only on radio, but also on uh, Facebook Live, so you can contact us in a variety of different ways. We continue with hour number two with three uh, brand new guests, and I'm going to begin by uh, asking them. Uh, first of all, let me mention we have uh, Michael Golden, who's with us, who's an independent progressive, Judith Sherwin, who's a conservative and uh, Mike Miller, who is a conservative Republican. He also is from DePaul University. He's an economist. And uh, I'm going to begin by uh, asking you the question I asked at the beginning of the broadcast, and that is, 
when when you look at all the the negative news that's out there, is there anything positive? Is there ever is there any silver lining at the end of of this mess, Michael Golden? I think we all I think we all hope so. I think that I think that people generally in America have done a better job of staying in place than we thought would happen a few weeks ago. Um, and I think a lot of people, I include myself, are sort of reflecting on what's important, whether it's relationships or purpose in life, uh, some people's faith. But I, I do wish, I think this was a golden opportunity for the president to unite the country. And I think he still has time to do that. But sometimes I think for, for a country's ethos or thinking to change, it takes some leadership and, and binding of everyone together. And I think that's a big opportunity still that exists right now. Judy, do you see uh, brightness somewhere in the future? Well, you know, I agree with, uh, I agree with Michael about the fact that I think Americans have really sort of stepped up to the plate in a way that uh, I can't even believe, uh, certainly didn't believe in the beginning of March. Um, you know, when someone first suggested to me before the president even mentioned it, but the only way to really stop this virus was for everybody to stay home for a few weeks, which which I thought was crazy. But um, mm -hmm. I didn't think that anybody could ever do it. But they actually have been able to do it. And I think that there's been a great deal of unity um, in certain quarters of this country, uh, actually in more quarters than I would have expected mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, uh, pulling ourselves together and fighting this this war because it is a war and um there's a lot of negative coverage about the president as there always is right but i think that um i think he's done a um a good job in terms of trying to unify people okay. all right let me go let me go to mike miller let's get mike miller in with, with the same question mike uh, is there is there a silver lining there somewhere I would think the the only one I can come up with is that uh, we will be more prepared for the next one because I think we will put aside a lot more medical supplies. But I think in the long run, this may have many, many more negatives than positives. Part of it is my concern regarding the data. If the data come out that this was not worth it, that we didn't have to do what we've just done for the first time in American history, that the death rate is no greater than, say, 0.1% or whatever, and people realize the damage which was done, I think it'll be much, much harder in, in the future to ever even try to do something, regardless of what happens in terms of some kind of pandemic. If that turns out to be true, who is going to first reveal that news to the American people? I think how, how, be, is the, how does I, that story evolve? I want to pick up on that. Uh, Mike, I'll let you start the discussion, but, but go ahead. Let's, yeah, let's I, say all these models are, were way, way off. They have been already, and I would think that this is a, something a year or two down the road uh, because the data takes a long time to, to uh, aggregate and then to analyze. And I think it'll come out in peer-reviewed journal articles that there's, there was a problem in the way that we dealt with the, uh, with the data and that the models were inherently flawed because we were trying to make decisions under uncertainty instead of risk. And, and uh, I'm, I'm just fearful that when this is all over and, and we didn't have to, to create unemployment, which could approach 20 or 25 percent and a drop in GDP that could approach 25 percent, that um, I, I'm, I'm concerned. So to Judy, me, the back, long run is a problem. Judy, back to you to pick up on that and then to Michael. To me? Yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, I think that I, I would agree that the models have been flawed. 
But part of this is we're never really going to know. We're never really going to know if if we had done what the president refers to writing it out, like they tried to do in Great Britain, what they are apparently trying to do in Sweden. We don't really know what would have happened. And we had we had the example, I think we really started to get frightened of this. And by we, I mean government actors, um, even Dr. Fauci, as late as the middle of February, was saying Americans don't need to change their lifestyle over this. I think we really started to get worried when we started to see what was going on in Italy. And then all of a sudden, New York blew up. And I think that, that those two things really frightened everybody into making all of those projections. I mean, I think that what they started to do is they took a look at the numbers in Italy and they said, oh, my God, if we take those numbers and we apply them to the United States and to the population in the United States, what is going to happen? All right. And so it's not so much the models were bad. The, the model out of Washington, the model out of Imperial College in, in London was mm-hmm. wrong. But but um, models, again, to quote Dr. Fauci, are just as good as the information that goes into okay. it. Michael Golden, like- your response. You know, I agree a, a little bit with what Mike Michael was saying. I mean, I, I, I think the mortality rate probably will end up being lower, but the, the, the data is incomplete. There's a ton more people walking around, maybe me right now, with this that that mm-hmm. that don't know about it. And my question to Michael is that it look, there's no good there's no good options here. You write it out, you're gonna have a ton of people die. The question is how many? But if you did if you didn't do anything and we have more than half a million cases from doing something and the hospitals are overrun, if we did nothing, how, how would you how would you handle it in the hospitals and how would you level off people spreading it around the country like what's the better answer than trying to shut down for a few weeks or a month a criticism I, a criticism of of the president by 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 my media and and the democrats is that he didn't act fast enough he was he was too he That's was too silly. slow to act but here here's my question to you michael yeah if if he had acted you know uh you know at the time, let's say early January or mid January, and his scientists were saying we've got to we've got to shut things down. The American people they needed, frankly, I think they needed all kinds of deaths to get their attention. If Donald Trump in mid January or late January had said we're going to shut the economy down because we have you know thirty five deaths in in the state of, of Washington. The, the, the Democrats would have been hounding him. They would have said, well, let's let's go for another impeachment. This guy is okay. nuts. And the American okay. people, I mean, the American okay. people would not I'll, have bought answer, the story. I'll answer. I, th- I actually think I, I think part of that is a fair point. Uh, it would have seemed like an, a, a way overreaction in January. Right. However, there's a big span between late January and mid-March. They, this could have been done two or three weeks earlier when there was a massive problem going on in our country. But I'll tell you something. The, the, what I have a bigger problem with the president is, and he's, I'm not saying he hasn't made some good decisions, but 
the country was not ready. The government, he gutted some of the things in the government that would have been totally focused on this for months, for months. Okay. And I think that they would have come up with a hell of a lot better plan right. if he listened. We're going we're to we're gonna come back. That's a Democratic talking point. We're going to come back and we're going to let Judy respond to it. I'm Bruce Dumont back shortly. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois, where we're doing this program from. Uh, WCGO is our Chicago affiliate and... Uh, if uh, you are listening around the country, Evanston, Illinois, is just north of uh, Chicago. It borders Chicago, and uh, it's home to, obviously, Northwestern University, which is about a couple of miles away from where I'm sitting this evening, and also a beautiful Lake Michigan. So uh, now you know where we are geographically, and uh, we've got great guests on the phone and are joining us on, on, on Zoom, I guess. Uh, we're not, nobody, nobody's on the phone anymore. Everybody's on Zoom. Judy, my, my question to you uh, uh, Michael had thrown, Michael Golden had thrown sort of a, uh, a partisan bombshell right before the break, and I'm now letting you pick up on it. He basically had said that uh, the criticism uh, of the White House uh, is that the president dropped the ball. Right. Well, uh, there have been a number of, of Democratic talking points which have been debunked as we've gone along. The, the, the biggest one, I suppose, is that he... He uh, eliminated the White House National Security Council office for the pandemic response, which is absolutely not true. What he did was it was reorganized in a reorganization of the National Security Council. Everybody is still there. On March 16th in the Washington Post, uh, one of the people who was actually there when all of this happened, his name is Tim Morrison, wrote a lengthy article in the Washington Post of all places, which which most Democrats have blithely ignored, indicating that the that the president did not um, end the pandemic office. There have been there have been all kinds of um, assertions that he wanted to lower the CDC's budget. Uh, he didn't do that. Um, okay. Judy, are, let me let me just let me just interject here because, uh, uh, as I've said over the last several weeks, I, I don't want. Uh, uh, us to spend too much time looking in the rearview mirror and finger pointing because there's oh. fingers to be pointed in in all directions with governors and 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 I didn't even pick up on that in the last hour so I want to switch to Mike Miller mm-hmm. and, and ask you Mike I mean if if everything is in the rearview mirror politically and again we have a long way to go before fine, November right? is is the next great challenge of the president you know obviously it's opening of the economy. Right. What does that mean to you, and how practically would that work if you have governors that are comfortable in basically saying to their states, we're going to uh, keep you folks all at home? Doesn't well, that's the, Go ahead. that, of course, is the issue you have under federalism. This is not a federal government issue, except maybe for providing um, uh, financial assistance. This is a state-by-state situation. This is what I wish would be done, is that that people would stay at home based upon their the riskiness of their situation. I'm I'm 66 years old. Maybe I should stay home, but somebody who's only 40 should not, and they should be allowed to go to work. And I think the president's going to be judged by the time we get to November on how well the the uh, he allows and the states allow the economy to to but reopen. Wait, but when you say between the states and the let's let's look at California, which mm-hmm. is the of uh, the most productive of the states. It's sure. like the fifth largest economy in the world. It is. Uh, yeah. They are getting good grades, even from the president. They're getting good grades. Yeah. They're getting good grades from the scientists. So, again, right. for those listening in California, and we have a lot of listeners and viewers in California, what would you say to them? I and mean, what what does, does does Gavin Newsom just keep stay the course, 
or does he try to start reopening some of the economic uh, levers uh, in, in California? Well, part of it is, uh, is an opinion of mine that uh, we should try to open the levers and get things moving sooner rather than later. We have to recognize that people will die, of course, from COVID-19. There's no doubt that that's the case. But we also know through, through more than a few studies that people die when they're unemployed. People, there's many people, there's a rise in the amount of domestic violence and, and depression and so forth. So Lives are destroyed by, by having the kind of economic disaster we're about to face. And we have to, I just think we're not weighing the costs and benefits the same way. We're assuming that by, by uh, hunkering down at home, it has almost an infinite benefit. And that's, of course, preposterous. Michael, what would be the, uh, to you, Michael Golden, what, what would be the metrics that you would use to suggest to the president, uh, let's open the government? I'm going to put you on the, put you on the, on a, on the conservative side now. What, what advice would you be giving to the president if you wanted to open the economy? <laughs> Boy, that, that's, that's, that's kind of decisions way over my head. I'm not even in Congress, much less the president. I, I, I think if you had a lot of experts and you're listening and there's, you know, there, there are experts that have talked about the fact that you're going to need contact tracing and that we don't have the infrastructure set up, whether it's Mike talking about the states or federally to do that. I do think that to your first question in the show, where is there something that good that can come out of this? And I was saying that it would be great to unify the country in a way that's more than just, you know, sitting on your ass at home. That you'll need teams to do testing and contact tracing, if that's the right answer. And the other countries seem to think that that has moved them forward to getting back into the swing of things in their country. I don't think there's exact answers to all of this yet, because I don't think that we've seen something like this uh, uh, since, you know, 1918. Um, but I, I don't I can't give you an exact date when we would all come back. I would imagine it's going to be in some kind of shifts. But without testing, without measurement, I just don't I don't see the what's the point. You'll just it'll get worse. You don't want to shut it down for six months, do you? Judy, go ahead. Oh, no. I think uh, I mean, Dr. Burks has talked about this. Dr. Fauci talked about it today, actually. Um, they're not just going to flip a switch and say, OK, everybody. Right. Right. Work. It's all good now. Um, Dr. Burks has talked in, in great detail about the granularity of the data that she has right now, even though it is not completely 100% what she would like to have. But she does have the data, and she talked, and people challenged her and said, well, how are you going to know where it's going to break out, and how are you going to know if you're going to be able to have a certain area go back to work? And she says, we have experience with this. We have experience from the HIV work that we have done around the world. We know how to read this kind of data and we know what to look for. And she is looking at this in a very granular way and so is Dr. Fauci. You're not just gonna say, New York, fine, everybody go to work. The city of New York is gonna be on lockdown, I would think, for a while yet. Perhaps upstate New York, which never really had the problem that you had in the city, mm -hmm. those people are going to be able to go to work. Perhaps downstate Illinois is going to be able to go back to work because they don't have the mm -hmm. problems that we have up here in Chicago. But you see, that's the... You, 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 you nailed it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Go back. Let's go to Mike, and then we'll be active. Go ahead, Mike. Judy, you nailed it. The, the, the government is a very blunt uh, policymaker. There would be no reason. There are there are still, I believe, counties in Illinois that do not have a single case of COVID. Those counties should not be shut down. 
But the governor has made a blanket decision based essentially upon Chicago that we're all going to be shut down. I think that uh, opening up uh, in areas uh, that can, the sooner the better. I just remember the lives that you are being ruined and and long term here. What because does this once you job? You you you're you're behind the eight ball for years in terms of earnings. One of the other things that that I want to bring up, and we talked about it briefly last week on the program, and that is the people that we are relying on now. I mean, we're relying on the healthcare system. We're relying on the on the scientists. We're requiring uh, you know people with a lot of you know a lot of education and a lot of scientific information. But we are also relying on those that are at the lower end of our educational structure. These are the, the, the hourly workers who are working in food service. They're, they're, they're stocking shelves. Uh, they're, they're working at the gas stations. I mean, they're working in a variety of areas that, that normally they're sort of the invisible people. You never, you never think much about these people in the past. You're thinking about them now because they're working minimal, uh, minimum wage or very low, lowly paid. And yet they're, they're the key link in how we're surviving now. So how how do we, and and I would argue that they would be in the first wave of being tested, but how how are we as a society going to move forward, and hopefully uh, move forward in a successful way? How are we going to do that and not reward those people who are keeping the country moving now? Well, I think if there's if there's a silver light that comes out of this. Yeah. So- it's those people who we have ignored for years that yeah. you don't even see them. You yeah. know, the grocery clerks, the people putting the stuff in the way, the, the, the guy who comes and brings me my Instacart order, the yeah. Amazon people. Those people, we are now noticing who they are. And, and I believe, um, well, certainly in, in, I believe it's in the, the third package, and there may be more in the fourth package, there is an effort to try to help those people financially and to help the people, many of whom were in those positions who were let go and who aren't fortunate enough to still have jobs right. and are still trying to help us out. But in terms of getting our, our economy back again, there's one more point I'd like to make. It's those people who are going to have to be tested. It's those right. people, and not for, not for COVID-19. You could test me for COVID-19 right now and I'd be negative and you could test me an hour from now because I picked up something yeah. from outside and I could have it. That's not the testing we need. We need the antibody testing, again, which Dr. Burks has talked about, and they are in a position to starting to do that. We have to start to try to look at this with some sort of forward-looking positive mentality. We have tools, we have to use them, and we should use them on healthcare workers. We should use them, <coughs> excuse me. I want, I want, we're we're, we're going to have to break. When we come back, I want Michael Golden to sort of pick up on this. Because when we're, when we're creating the next priority of who's going to get the testing and who's going to do the antibody testing, obviously I think everyone agrees that, that the, the medical people that are on the front lines, they've got to be in the first wave of being tested. The, the first responders have to be, but when we include the other people, 
where do we put the people who were the grocery clerks and 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 the the cleaning ladies and other people that we work with? I mean, should they be prioritized when we come back? Huh. Bruce Dumont back. We're going to let our guests now introduce themselves, and we're going to begin with Michael Golden. Give us about fifteen seconds on who you are, Mr. Golden. I am the author of the book Unlock Congress and a co-founder of the One Million Degrees Scholarship Program in Illinois, which helps low-income community college students to succeed in school, work, and life. But tell about your blog. You've got a new uh, you've got a new podcast. It's uh, you're interviewing all kinds of famous people. <laughs> I've been doing that a few years. It's called the Golden Mean. I've started on video a little bit more than audio, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you you were a guest. We talked from the from the museum in, in Chicago, ago. the Broadcasting Museum, and talk about your career and about the museum and so how, how it's do people built. How, how, how do people find it if they want to follow you uh, on a regular basis? What do they do? The, the, the Golden Mean dot US. The mean. Golden M E A N dot US. Okay. Thank you. Very good. Uh, Judith Sherwin, tell everybody uh, who you are and uh, why you're here. Okay, so I'm sure uh, because you asked me, um, I am I am a conservative, uh, I guess a conservative Republican. Uh, I uh, teach at Loyola University in the law school. Uh, I teach religious liberty. I hope we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about that later. Um, I also teach ethics and and business, and um, uh, and I practice law in Chicago. in the healthcare area. So we've been very busy with various COVID-19. Sure. Mike Miller. Hey there, I, um, I'm i an economist at DePaul University in Chicago. I've uh, been there for the past 40 years after getting my PhD in economics from uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Okay. Blue demons. I want yeah. to, uh, let's yeah. go back and Someday take a they'll win again. Let's go back, uh, let's take a call. Uh, Terry is listening to us in St. Joe, uh, uh, St. Joe, Missouri or St. Joe, Michigan? Uh, uh, wrong both times. St. Joe, Indiana. St. Joe, Indiana. Uh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Two ancillary uh, questions. One, are we going to look differently at mass transit now? Because I think I see a connection. The countries, that states that use mass transit the most had the worst outbreaks. Mm. And two, are we going to see all counter help? disappear these low-paying counter help like you won't have somebody take your order at mcdonald's anymore you'll just go punch it in and then go wait in line and if you're not checking your groceries out now at walmart you will here within a year or you'll have just one line to help people who are possibly handicapped or mm-hmm. who need help but you know anybody who has contact with the public those jobs what was questionable whether they made sense or not especially at $15 an hour, it's going to be now, I might as well get rid of them. They're dangerous. Go ahead, Mike Miller. This is right up your alley. Well, anything that is repetitive and can be in any way mechanized, they're going to, they're going to disappear slowly. And I don't, that's with or without COVID. And many uh, places now you go in, there are kiosks to order unless you want to go see a person. So I think that um, that, uh, that change is going to come regardless of what happens with COVID. How many uh, how many restaurants? Uh, this is just a generic question to everybody. How many restaurants are likely never to open again because of the iffiness of, of the business and the fact that that so many of them are affected by this and they're being forced into having you know a takeout and 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 and, and drive through? I mean, I 
I'm wondering whether some uh, fast food restaurants are ever going to open their dining rooms again. Yeah, I'm more. I, I guess I'm more concerned about the ones with dining rooms that were uh, right. just like a, a diner. I'm, I'm more concerned about places which we would call a diner because people don't go there for takeaway. They usually just go to the drive ups. And so I'm not as much concerned about the drive ups. And they do live. They do exist on a very small margin. So something like this could easily destroy them. And those are the kinds of things we had to think about before we decided to shut down the economy. And we're going to have to live with these consequences. How do we go about reopening it? I want to go back to the question that I asked in the last segment. How do we go about deciding who is who gets reopened and who does not? I mean, in Chicago, we should mention that barbershops and salons and nail salons and hair salons, they are not considered essential. And yet we Except have for the mayor. Except the mayor of the city of Chicago, she went out. She got a yeah, you know she that? got a haircut, and and her her stylist very stupidly took a picture and sent it up on the inter- the mm. uh, the internet uh, so everybody could see it. But again, notwithstanding that, I mean, Mike, obviously you don't deal, Mike Miller, you don't deal with haircuts too often. Not too often. Uh, uh, either, either that, or you got very close. But Judy, let me ask you: when you start making the list of what's essential and non-essential. Would you change the list we have now, and and what would you add to it or delete from it? Well, well, just just a little a little jibe, uh, which isn't really serious. I mean, I I wrote to my hairdresser a couple of weeks ago, and I said, "How dare they not make hairdressers an essential business?" <laughs> uh, you know, because I saw on the internet that we are now going to find out what everybody's real health, hair color is. Yep. But be that as it may. Um, you know, the, the issue of restaurants, I, I think the president has a very interesting idea about the interest of restaurants uh, or the, the resurgence of restaurants. Um, and and again, you know, it's a, it's a tax policy. If you will recall, uh, I remember in the Reagan era and later, uh, you know, people used to have, you know, power lunches and take people to ball games and take people to various entertainment venues and be able to reduce their taxes by that corporations, you know, and people thought that that was, that was just, you know, letting the elites have special rules. And so they eliminated all those tax breaks mm-hmm. Looking at reinstating those kinds of tax breaks for certain kinds of restaurants. And I, I think that that may help some restaurants. Don't you open. think, don't you think, however, I want to get Michael to respond to that. That, that seems to me would be a, a horrible thing because half of America still thinks that Donald Trump uh, only cares about the, the wealthy. And here he's focusing on, uh, you know, on, uh, on three martini lunches and, and, and he's going to focus on that. Michael, is, is, is that like a perfect thing for uh, for a Democrat to knock out of the ballpark? I, I don't know. You know what? I'm not as setting aside what you might think, Bruce. I'm not as big on taking partisan pot shots in this thing. There's things I wish the president would do. I cheer for him when I watch. I want him to get up there and be clear, have a plan and be clear. Even if he agrees with Mike that this is that federalism reigns and this should be done by the states. And I, I all due respect to Mike. There's a lot of history and law in our country and judicial decisions that say that the, the national, <laughs> the federal government does things that's going to affect everybody uh, every year, every week in Congress. Mm. Uh, but I, underst- I understand your point that you'd rather have it, you know, federalism take over and something like this. But the president's not clear, Bruce. He's not clear. One day he's helping with testing. One day he's going to leave it to the states. I wish he would get up there and say, 
here's the plan. And even if we're not going to do all of it at the federal government, here are the things we're going to do. One, two, three, four, the things we need. And we will help the states with X, Y, and the states we will not help with Z. And this is generally the plan over the next four to eight weeks. It may be flexible, but people don't hear that from him. He rambles on for two hours fighting with reporters. Let's get something. Leadership is about clarity. One of the biggest things about leadership is give us give us some clarity about where you stand on this stuff. When you move around, it does not inspire confidence. That has nothing to do with left or right, if you, if you ask me. Yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah. I, go ahead, Judy. Yeah. I mean, if I could respond to that a little bit. I mean, he does have a plan. A lot of people don't like his plan, and, and that's fine. But he does have a plan. He is a person who believes in federalism. He is a person who believes that the states are in a better position to know the needs of their communities. Remember, we're looking for a granular approach to this. You had a catastrophe in New York City, okay? That's not a a plan. That's just what he's not going to do. Let me finish. You had a catastrophe in New York City that had to be addressed by the governor and the the, the mayor of New York City and the governor of New York, and even they couldn't agree on what to do. All right. The president stepped in and helped them in a variety of ways that nobody can can say did not happen. And the plan was for the governors to take control of their states, of their of their needs, determine what their needs are and let the federal government know what those needs are. And as he said a million times, I wish I had a nickel for every time he said it. When they said, well, the state gets in there and it's fighting with another state over product, and then the feds come in and they undercut us, and he says, don't let us do that. Let me know when that happens. Let us know. We will fix it. All right? He has a plan. The plan is for the local, granular government people who can see what's going on on the ground to fix things. Okay. I don't see that as a plan, but we can agree to disagree. He talks about it all the time, and that is what's happening. Listen, you don't need a plan. The economy, go ahead, just, Mike. The, the economy just operates. And one thing that bothers me, Bruce, right? It's not, it's not you. It's the the question you asked is one that people are asking about which one should we let open. The government should not be choosing winners and losers. Okay. Because clearly, by doing this, they're going to destroy certain people. I think if hairdressers have uh, such that. Um, you come into the store and you won't be within six feet of somebody. You can let's have an appointment. Restaurants. Let's not put people at every table. Let's put people at every other table. Have a sign out front that says this. Let the market, let the people, let the business owners make those decisions. Yeah. Well, I, I one thing I wish that could happen is that the, the thing I miss the most uh, is going to the movies. Now, I know I can oh, watch I, a movie I at home. I, I miss going to the movies, and I, I would hope that there's someone in the, the major uh, theater chains, whether it's AMC or you name it, I wish they would be figuring out, and they just filed bankruptcy last week, but hopefully they'll survive, because I, I'd like to be able to have a, a safe experience in a theater, and I'd like the theater to figure out how many feet apart Right. Should people be so they know exactly how many seats they can sell for for which auditorium? They basically can do that and now. That's what the, the market can do that so much better than the government. I, I totally agree. I just hope that somebody at AMC is listening. Yeah. I'm Bruce Dumont back shortly from Evanston, Illinois, with uh, some calls coming in. Don't go away.
Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, happy Easter to everyone, by the way, and happy uh, Passover to those that uh, celebrated Passover in the last just couple of days. Uh, Judith uh, Sherwin joins us. Uh, she is one of our guests. And, uh, Judith, I know that you wanted to talk about some of the uh, the loss of uh, religious liberty that uh, we may be dealing with uh, on, a, on a day, the, the highest uh, holiday of uh, certainly uh, Christians in, in the world. And uh, a lot of people were told not to go to church today, and a lot of people decided... By golly, I'm going to go to church today. Right, and and uh, I I don't know if you're aware of it, but I believe um, I think it's the mayor of a town in Kentucky um, was enjoined by the federal district court from interfering with people wanting to go to a church service um, in in a drive-up kind of. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, situation uh so you know the first amendment is the first amendment for a very simple reason it's it's the most important reason why we have a country to begin with uh and the the first freedom really of the first amendment is religious liberty and so this has been particularly galling to a number of conservatives, and, and I would assume some progressives as well, who all of a sudden have been told, you can't go to church, you can't, you can't even come up with some socially distanced way of going to church, uh, because your governor has decided in an exercise of the police power that you can't go. Now, the police power, governors have the police power, as we all know, the president doesn't, uh, but governors do. And governors can do things under the police power that are kind of scary. Uh, and as I've been telling a number of people who have been complaining to me over the last few weeks, the next time you elect a governor, pay very attention to who he is, what kind of, or she is, what kind of character they have, because you're giving them a very important power over your life. Okay. You know what else is scary about that, uh, Judy, is... I think that same person in, in Kentucky was going to write down the license plate numbers of all the people who showed up and then go to their homes and demand that they be tested. Right. And now, so, they don't do that for people like me. I went to Costco or something. Right. How dare he? I think that's. Yeah, that's I mean, a, a so uh, yeah, it's, it's beyond comprehension because if you're going, you know, what's the difference between going through a drive through, you know, and staying in your car than going to the parking lot and staying in your car and having a loudspeaker project the services mm-hmm. out of the parking lot. I don't know what the difference is. And there it's, is no difference. Right. Um, that, uh, we're going we're gonna to move on. We've got callers, uh, folks, so let's bring, uh, let's Ooh, bring cool. Sean in, listening to us on KTKZ in Sacramento, California. Surviving in Sacramento, Sean, go ahead. Yeah, you're talking about, I think, one uh, sort of things at the end of this is that may happen. I think that we're going to see a re-energized labor movement in this country because uh, you know, people who've been essentially wanting a higher minimum wage, more benefits and positions that are considered menial, uh, now are seen as essential. And the thing is, is that we're discovering that very quickly. The economy is depending on that. So if you go to your local supermarket, there's somebody probably making minimum wage, cleaning the carts that are contaminated and then handing you a clean cart. Uh, there's somebody, you know, at the cash register being coughed at, sneezed at, 
And the thing is, is that, you know, those positions were typically thought as, um, you know, low-wage jobs. And the problem is is that, you know, I think that uh, we're going to see those in a whole new light. And I think the movement itself is going to have inspiration because it's easy for people who have office jobs, often with telecommuting and they make more money, you know, they they can easily do that. We've got people now working that are essentially keeping our economy float, making minimum wage, putting their lives at risk for minimum wage. And I think that that what's going to happen, and I think this country is going to look and go, yeah, maybe we do need to make make it better for them. Sean, I, I, Sean I, I, I totally agree with you, and I think that one of the ways that this is going to uh, roll out, as you've suggested, it may be a growing need for, for labor unions. I would hope that in this moment that it also is an opportunity for corporations who own major restaurant chains or even restaurants to think of their their low end employees in a different way, and the cost of doing business oh, yes. maybe should go up. Maybe that maybe the guy that's making you yeah. know twenty five. It's just it's a time when when I think we collectively, and I don't think it's necessarily a Republican Democrat thing. No. I think it's an opportunity for people to acknowledge that you know there's people they're part of an invisible economy. That, that that we see but we we never recognize they're like literally invisible whether it's the bus boy or whatever it happens to be these are people as you say they're risking their lives now for pennies because it's the only job they have and i think that uh, hopefully it will not just be the labor movement i hope it will be the business community i, I would hope it would be stockholders i would hope it be the average american i mean you know something else that we probably could all do now and again i i haven't done it so maybe i can start doing it and that is you know when you're going through the drive through you generally don't tip someone in a drive through maybe we should start tipping people uh not you know just out of the goodness of our heart because the person there, they're helping you eat and survive. They're not making a hell of a lot of money, at least at the franchise drive through places. So maybe that's something we can do as part or, of this, Or help this, them get health care. Or help them get health care from the company. That, that's true, too. That, I mean, that, why that not? But it's something we've got to do. Listen, on that note, Sean, thank you very much. You bring up an, a, a good point. I want to thank uh, Michael Golden, <clears throat> who is our independent progressive. Uh, Unlock Congress is the name of his book. Judith Sherwin, we thank you very much. Always uh, lovely to be with you. And Mike Miller, uh, the pride of DePaul University for the last 40 years, we thank him for joining us as well. And Marshall helped make this program possible. He's terrific. And uh, I'm Bruce Dumont. Happy Easter again. And again, happy Passover to our Jewish listeners and and viewers. Until next week, this is Bruce Dumont. Good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope. 
he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a life.